Welcome to the Splat Zones. We are a monthly video cast slash podcast dedicated to bringing you the best Nintendo related topics. And today we are bringing you a very special segment of the podcast. It is our first ever interview. But before I introduce our very special guest, I want to explain the how and the why this interview came to be. This interview is the brainchild of something Mario Party and myself talk about in passing a lot on the Splat Zones, and that's the console wars of the 90s. It was an era when one army dominated the market and another defiantly stood to challenge. It was all-out war, and the two generals who led the troops, Mario on one side, Sonic the Hedgehog on the other. The battlegrounds of this war, schoolyards, playgrounds, cafeterias, and the soldiers who fought bravely were the youth of 90s America. The winner of this war would ultimately define the future of video games as we know them now, so the stakes were very high. I have with me today Blake J. Harris, the man who would chronicle the events of this war in his amazing book, Console Wars, Sega, Nintendo, and the battle that would define a generation. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, first off, I do want to say, huge fan of the book. Awesome book. Thank you. Uh, it was my first book, and therefore my favorite book. But uh, no, it was, you know, I grew up during that era, so writing the book for me was, you know, it had a lot of personal value, and uh, I'm so glad that it has been enjoyed by readers like yourself. No, yeah, it's a great book, and it's, I like how it stands out in a market because there's nothing like this book. I mean, Game Over kind of comes close, but it doesn't really dive as deep as uh, Console Wars does. Yeah, thank you. I mean, honestly, I think, you know, a natural question people ask is, is why did I write the book? Um, especially because I am not, or at least I wasn't much of a gamer. But it was because I wanted to read a book like this. And, and to your point, there is so few, there are so few video game books out there in general. And then there are so few that really take a character-based approach. Um, you know, Game Over by David Chess was kind of the only one that felt like it was really focused on business and characters in this way. Um, and, and, and I also love Stephen Kent's Ultimate History of Video Games. Um, but, you know, I, I also wanted to make it like a story because I wanted to make this exciting industry video game accessible to all sorts of people. So I'm glad that you uh, that it worked for you. Yeah, and it just brought back a bunch of memories of, like, those old-school playground arguments that, uh, <laughs> you know, kids don't have today, which kind of leads me to my first question. As a soldier in the Sega Nintendo War, does it boggle your mind at all that there are children today that have never known Sega as anything other than a third-party developer? Uh, that's a great first question, especially for your first interview. I'm impressed at it. Um, but let's see. As a, I guess, okay, so I'm 33, and so I'm getting to that point in my life where... Uh, kids, I guess I would call them, people 10 years, 15 years younger, do things that boggle my mind all the time, that things have changed so quickly in such a short amount of time. Um, but kind of to answer your question, it doesn't boggle my mind that people aren't familiar with Sega, because even our generation, or I don't, I don't know how old you are. How old are you, by the way? Okay. So, you know, I think even for our generation, like Atari was kind of a shell of itself when we were familiar with it. So yeah. to, you know, people 10 years older than us, Atari means something different. So that's not surprising. You know, it's always a little sad, but, but those things happen. What, what is surprising to me is that those kids that, that you know, basically anyone 20 or younger, um, like my cousin, I have a 10-year-old cousin, 
and he saw an early version of the book proposal that I had, which had Mario and Sonic on the cover. And he's like, oh, Mario and Sonic. And I was like, oh, you know them. That's great. He's like, yeah, they're best friends. And I was like, <laughs> dude, no, they're not. They hate each other. But, you know, he knows them from Mario and Sonic at the Olympics or from Smash Brothers. Mm-hmm. Like, so, uh, so that's kind of what boggles my mind, just that the, that the two companies whose mascots defined, you know, this great console war now are uh, uh, buddies with each other. So that's, that's really always uh, a little bit of a jolt for me. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. And I feel like the introduction of Sonic into a Nintendo game was a very watered-down version. I mean, had he come in Smash, it would have been a little bit easier to swallow because he could make them fight. But it was yeah, a great Sonic point. at the Olympics. Um, yeah, that's a great so, point. Thank you. Uh, what are the three most important things Sega got right after the appointment of Tom Kalinske as president? Um, so, yeah, so when Tom came in, the, the ship started to turn around, and it's really hard to pin down just three things, um, from, mostly because it was always a team effort, and Tom will be the first person to say that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to pick out a few things, but one, I think, is the... The head-to-head advertising and, and the way that Sega represented itself as a brand, you know, even more so than the Sega does with Nintendo campaign, which preceded Tom. Um, you know, Sega didn't just go head-to-head. You know, I, there was, a, I think, a joke in the book that said, you know, what does Sega do to Nintendo? Like, uh, you know, lose money? What, they, who was Sega? They, they, they were kind of co-opting their identity from Michael Jackson and Joe Montana. But, but they didn't really have their own identity, and Sonic played a key role in that. So I think that, you know, the num- so the number one is just um, the type of advertising they did, and uh, and that kind of feeds into the second thing, which was just the brand identity of Sega and, and Sonic's role in that. Uh, you know, I think that we can't lose sight of the fact that none of this would have happened, or none of this would be, uh, or would Sonic would have happened if the game itself wasn't awesome, or at least so different than what was out there. But the way that Tom and Al and Madeline and everyone, you know, kind of raised Sonic and brought Sonic into the world, I think that's a huge part of why 25 years later, my cousin knows Sonic. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of popular mascot-type characters over the years, whether it's Pac-Man or Crash Bandicoot, and they don't yeah. have the same lifespan as Sonic. And I think that has a lot to do with how much love and care as well as strategy went into Sonic. Um, and, you know... Tom had done similar types of things with He-Man, Masters of the Universe, and with with Barbie, and with those true old vitamins. So, uh, you know, he really had this magic touch. And uh, and then I think the third thing that that, uh, that started once Tom was there that, that is like a little bit underrated because we tend to think of all the games being made in Japan during that time yeah. was the development that was done in America um, and, and the types of games that, that Sega started to do. You know, for me. As a kid, sports games were the only thing I cared about, and Sega was the yeah. company that did good sports games. And so, um, you know, a lot of those games were made by EA, but they played better on the Genesis than they did on the Super Nintendo. Or yeah. Sega did do some first-party games, and obviously the Joe Montana football uh, being an example. But, but you know, they, they made sports games, they made sports of focus, they borrowed that attitude, and then they also... Um, you know, did a lot of, like, Hollywood properties. Uh, they did, like, Jurassic Park and other things. And, and they just really, uh, you know, they did different kinds of games than Nintendo did, um, which was kind of, 
epitomized by the Mortal Kombat situation. But, you know, <laughs> you know, and even the answer to these three reasons, I feel like they're also interrelated. You know, the, the blood in Mortal Kombat has to do with the types of games Sega would do, but it also has to do with their identity, the business who they were, they were who Nintendo wasn't. Uh, but that's probably how I would, you know, those are the three things that really jump out to me. Awesome. So you chose this very unique uh, writing structure for the book. Uh, I don't want to say this, but it's kind of like fill in the blanks when it comes to dialogue. Uh, any particular reason you went that route? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it, it's definitely the biggest criticism from some people about the book, uh, but it's something that I would do again and I don't regret. Um, it, it has to do with a lot of reasons. One is my objective for the book was to write a book that was accessible to, to gamers and non-gamers equally. And so I thought the best way to do that was to tell a story and make, it, make sure people just, make sure you felt like you were in the room and sometimes even in the head of these people as opposed to just telling what happened. And then the second, even more important reason is I don't really believe that what happened as told by people is always reliable. I think it's yeah. usually a synthesis of different memories. And, uh, and, I, and I kind of feel like, you know, to tell a story in hindsight, um, aside from the contradictory factors, it really robs you of the energy and, and, and kind of the spirit of, of what these companies were all about. So, you know, I guess, I, you know, history is nothing without context. Like you could say um, 32X was a huge flop, which would probably be accurate, but you yeah. could also say that it is, 32X was the best-selling, you know, 32-bit adapter ever made. I mean, that's true. but of course, that's misleading. Um, so to me, the dialogue was the context. Uh, my only regret with the, with the dialogue stuff is I wish that I had mentioned that the authors know at the beginning that uh, most, if not all, the dialogue was approved by the subjects themselves because I think that it's kind of it's a presumptuous activity to write dialogue for other people. Okay. And, uh, and, and, you know, so I didn't want people to think that I was just like, you know, lying in my bed being like, ooh, wouldn't it be cool if this guy said this? You know, it was always based on the types of conversation they told me they had, and then it was, uh, you know, a, a, a back and forth with them to make sure that it sounded like them. And, and that's also kind of one reason I'm happy to be doing the documentary, so that people will see that, wow, that's really what they sound like, and that was what made it so fun for me, was that, um, you know, capturing these people's voices and their dynamic personalities. See, I find it hard to believe that that's a criticism. I believe that that's the book's strength. Because it takes a piece of nonfiction and turns it into like a real story. I mean, I've never seen a book approached from from this uh this method. So it actually kept me more engaged because it's like, oh, what is Tom gonna say? Because there are times in there where I think, or I just want Tom to say, you know, fuck you. Especially when he's talking to the president of a uh, EA. I just really want Tom to say, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, so and that's so that important because when Tom's telling the story to me, he's, he, you know, I, I think it wouldn't surprise anybody to know that a lot of the people that I interviewed, especially those from Sega, were really good storytellers. And when they tell the story, there's dialogue in it. And those are some of the moments that, you know, when he's telling the story, I wanted to say, fuck you also. And so when he <laughs> said it or when he said some variation of it or, you know, like when he paraphrases the response, I think that's so central to being in there. And, um, you know, I think it is a little bit of an unusual style for nonfiction, but some of my favorite 
nonfiction books, like especially, you know, one of my um, one of my biggest inspirations, I guess I would call it, is, is Ben Mesrick. Uh, he wrote The Accidental Billionaires, which was turned into The Social Network, and he wrote, um, you know, he, he's just written, uh, he wrote Sex on the Moon. He's written so many great true um, nonfiction stories, like Bringing Down the House as well, and, and he does a great job with that. And so I felt like, um, you know, obviously all of the action in the moment was meant to capture the emotion and and the spirit and, and to make it more dramatic, though, though grounded in, in what actually happened. Um, and, and then really it was all just a way to get the information to the reader. So, um, you know, in terms of style, um, not that this is a, a good comparison given that what you're saying is, you know, it's a nonfiction book. So I really structurally, uh, the way that I looked at it was like Game of Thrones, um, which because to me, uh, I realized along the way that that's kind of what the story is. Three, two or eventually three different houses with Sony who all think that they're the rightful heir, who all think that they're the ones that are doing things right, and that, you know, they all have such different interpretations of their um, competitors and of what they're doing. And, and there's so much history speech around these moments that it was almost like each chapter was a scene in a, in a book or in a movie, but like very much like Game of Thrones, where, it, you know, every chapter is a series of scenes or a scene. And then all this history, this tapestry of history that helps you understand what's happening and why it's important, is just weaved throughout. So um, I'm glad that, that you liked it. And, and uh, you know, I think it's the minority of people that have disliked it, but, but the ones that have disliked it have disliked it a lot. So there you go, stick that space. Well, thank you for that answer because that, that was awesome. Um, I have a, then my next question is uh, Nintendo's approach to the world was to take the high road, whereas Sega's was really. 90s in your face aggressive marketing why did nintendo sit back and allow them to get the leg up when they had the funds and the ability to go toe-to-toe well i think that you kind of answered the question partially in the question um in their minds it was them taking the high road um and kind of getting back to that idea of different perspectives from different players in the game like you know i think that sega's perspective would not be what they but that nintendo's taking the high road it was that nintendo was blindsided or that they were um, too unsure how to respond or, you know, they didn't, they didn't really know what to do. Um, so, I, you know, I think that, that, you know, in their mind, at first it was a matter of by not acknowledging Sega, then the problem didn't really exist. You know, there's a little bit of uh, the ostrich burying his head in the sand. Um, and then I think that uh, part of it, too, is... Uh, Sega was ready for a fight, and Nintendo just didn't want to fight in that regard. So maybe, you know, there was a few times when Nintendo did fight back a little bit in, in the war of words, um, but they, uh, but, you know, whatever Nintendo did, Sega would come back um, even harder, and, and, you know, Nintendo wasn't really looking to escalate in that way. Um, but that said, that did start to change around the time that Howard Lincoln um, took over at Nintendo, and, uh, you know, one of my favorite parts of the but one of my favorite parts about the real story is just that is that poem that Howard Lincoln did, wrote the red poem. <laughs> yes, uh, because that, that was so yeah, it was so un Nintendo at the time. And it was something that if young people told him not to do, but he was but he thought it was important. And I and I love that about Howard that he had that you know, he's that was such an emotionally driven decision by him, but he's such a logical intellectual guy, um, and that was a part of it as well. But, you know, to kind of take the gloves off a little bit there, I thought that was uh, 
symptomatic of how far things had come and, and you know, what would make Howard one of just one of the things that made Howard a pretty great leader. Yeah. Um, this question was brought to me by my brother. He kind of wants to know this. Uh, we all know the uh, Nintendo scorning of Sony at uh, CES and War Makes Strange Bedfellows, yet for some reason Sega and Sony just couldn't get on the same page. Why do you think that was? Um, yeah, I mean, I had heard a little bit about the June CES thing where Nintendo basically screwed over Sony uh, and did so in public. Um, and, but I never heard about Sega and Sony having a close relationship. And, uh, you know, when I first heard about this idea that Sega and Sony nearly partnered up to do what would have, you know, essentially been the Sega PlayStation or, you know, the next generation system with, with Sony, I was shocked. But as I started, you know, as the book is progressing and, you know, the research that I'm learning, it kind of makes a lot of sense because, you know, even at like the Sega CD launch event, it's a joint event held by Sony and Sega. It was a really close relationship. Um, so those are all, I guess, all reasons why it should have happened. But why didn't it happen? Um, you know, I think a lot of that goes back to the issues between Sega of America and Sega of Japan, which is ultimately what uh, played Sega in a lot of ways and became the more fascinating battle in this book. Um, and okay, I think question. also, <laughs> yeah, and I think also, um, you know, I think that's probably in the short term what really hurt that situation. Um, but I think that um, since these all are Japanese companies, uh, you know, it wouldn't be blasphemy to say that Nintendo and Sony always had a higher status in Japan than Sega. Sega was never revered in the same way. It was also founded by an American, which uh, I have to imagine, you know, maybe in a different class. And so I think that um, probably in the end, well, of course, in the end, Sony was happy that they didn't partner with Sega, but I think that they probably still had a lot of reservations about partnering with this company that didn't have the same kind of lineage and legacy as as uh, companies like Nintendo that have been around since the late 1800s or other big Japanese companies. Understood. Thank you. So you touched on a little bit. It's so very prominent in the book. It seems like Sega's fighting itself and Nintendo at the same time. Like, why? Why can't <laughs> SOJ and SOA just see eye to eye? Yeah, I mean... Um... How many times did I ask my laptop that while I was writing this book? Like, <laughs> come on, guys, what are you doing? Uh, it's amazing to me. Uh, for so many reasons, as a, as, a, as a kid or as a fan of video games, it's amazing to me that, that you know, that's the reason that Sega, or that's a big part of the reason why Sega, you know, really eventually left the hardware business and why they're shelled themselves now. Um, and then just as uh, somebody like following along and looking at the business story. It's so unfortunate. But, um, you know, I, I went into this book imagining that it, the most interesting battle would be between Sega and Nintendo, but I think in the end it turned out to be between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. And uh, it's, it's more than just a cultural disconnect because, you know, even to that point, the Nintendo of America and NCL, Nintendo Corporate Limited Japan, that's a American-Japanese relationship that obviously worked better in the, yeah. in the long run. Um, but, but it's really frustrating. And I, and I actually was hired by Sega of America to shoot some videos by Sega, shoot, to shoot some videos in Sega of Japan um, back in 2012 with my uh, business and directing partner, Jonah, Jonah Tulis. And, and uh, you know, it was 20 years later, so 
though direct comparisons can be made of different personnel, but I felt a lot of what the Sacred American employees described to me um, in terms of the passive aggressiveness, um, in terms of the way that the two different divisions were treating each other and, and let you, I was, you know, I was there, I was hired to, to shoot videos that were highlighting and celebrating these games. And like you, I was just thinking, like, guys, what, what is, what's happening here? We're, this is good for everyone. You know, why, why is this not such a difficult thing? Why is there um, such a lack of unity? Yeah, it's just such a hindrance. It's, I don't have much hair to pull out. And I was trying to pull it out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, imagine, uh, I can't, I tried for three years, but I just to imagine what Tom Kalinske especially was going through. And then you're in that awkward position where, um, you know, he's giving, receiving orders from Japan that are different than the kinds of orders he was receiving at the beginning. And all that's happened in between is that he's been more successful. And then he has to relay that to his employees who aren't happy with that. And it looks like it's his decision, or he has to be the guy to, you know, be a good team player. It's just such a frustrating, difficult position. Absolutely. Um, th- I want to go back to the artistic direction of the book. Um, near the end of the book, it seems like Tom's career with Sega is a failed marriage, and Tom's mentality is like, I still love her. I want to make this work for the kids, but I just can't do this anymore. How much of that is Tom's personal account versus your artistic direction? Um, well, I would say that in, I, I can't think of a place in the book where my artistic direction wasn't driven by the actual events. And I don't even just mean in terms of like who, what, where, when, how, but, but in terms of the personality and that feeling that it was meant to evoke, um, you know, that, like that sentiment to me was personified by a conversation I had with Ellen that Van Buskirk, um, who, you know, she's EBDB in the book and she had left Sega. Um, a little, a couple of years before Tom, and she had met with Tom, uh, I think in 95, maybe it was late 94, and uh, she was basically telling her, you know, he decided how difficult things were, and she said, you know, why don't you leave now? And he said that, you know, he was the captain of the ship for the good times, and he's going to be the captain of the ship for the bad times. So, um, you know, that's something that was... That, like, that's just the kind of guy that he is. He didn't say that to the press. That wasn't like him posturing. That was just him having a private conversation with a trusted confidant. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that that, that impression was, was given to readers because that's, that's, that's the kind of guy he is. And I think he's a really remarkable special leader. Yeah, it seems throughout the whole book, he carries himself with class. Uh, even in the face of like, disrespect and eternal loss he just finds a way to keep pushing forward and he always does it with his head high and and with class and that's how it's very well portrayed so i'm i'm certain that's what you took from your conversations with him yeah no but at the same time i could see i could see people in sega japan thinking that tom's arrogant i i don't think he is or maybe i just don't think that that kind of arrogance is the best thing. You know, uh, you know I, would, I would say that it's really boldness. Like, you know, the, his four-point plan, those kinds of things. Um, you know, he doesn't mince his words. Um, so, you know, and, and from Nintendo's perspective, one of my favorite lines is uh, when, when, when I interviewed George Harrison and he referred to uh, Tom as the music man, like marching into town, getting everyone excited, but there was really nothing behind him. It was all just like smoke and mirrors. So, you know, I think it's important that the book show that there's a different point of views. I, I, I tend to think that Tom's an incredible leader. Um, and 
And, uh, you know, but, but, you know, as part of what I wanted to account for the book is that history is a matter of perspective. So um, even though Tom is obviously the hero of the story, there are some people see those heroic strengths as flaws. Yeah. Thank you. Um, since you said it, you brought up, you, you segued me perfectly. Uh, console Wars seems to have been designed with the idea of the preservation of video game history. With video games becoming more and more geared to digital and online form of media, can you give an opinion on what, if anything, needs to be done to ensure the preservation of video games and its history? Um, I definitely can't tell you what would ensure it. Um, or no, I think that Luckily, there's a lot more attention paid to video game history now than there was even five years ago. Um, I think I think it's just I think it's really just a matter of people caring and wanting to preserve that history. And my contribution to that was this book, uh, and hopefully, it's an inspiration to others to want to try to preserve that history. But uh, but it's hard because um, you know I'm working on a book now about virtual reality, and and I only mention that because. Um, you know, it's a story that's obviously still happening, but it's happening in an age where there's email and text messages and recorded conversations, and, and it's almost automatically preserved. Whereas back in the early 90s and the 80s of gaming and the 70s, you know, the documents are so often destroyed. It's really hard, you know, to, to come across those things. And, uh, and so, you know, I think that it takes people who are uh, just inspired by it because for the most part it's... Uh, there's no monetary benefit to it. It's a, often a thankless job, um, but I but I do think that a lot of people believe it to be important, and and I'm um, I'm happy that there's you know so much. Uh, maybe it's just the circles I run in online, but I feel like more and more stuff is being uh, unearthed and being uh, and and being celebrated. No, I agree. Uh, there's a new book series coming out that I'm looking forward to getting into. It's a uh, Legends of Localization. Uh, that book is supposed to chronicle the localization of games from Japan to America, and that's that's a way of preserving the you know history. And I, especially, it's very specific because it's the the way it comes from Japan to the changes we make here in America that a lot of people don't really see, and it's it's just a way to get us back to that point where we can remember why these games are special. Yeah, and I think to kind of add to the conversation um, in terms of, like, what could be done, I think the number one thing to be done is to interview and get first-hand accounts from the people themselves. You know, a lot of the limited video game literature out there doesn't even come first-hand. A lot of times it comes second-hand or someone's writing an article. It comes from, a, you know, looking up on Wikipedia. Um, and, you know, some, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but you'll get a more comprehensive account from these people. And, uh, you know, as time moves forward, nobody's getting younger. So it's important to uh, try to get that first-hand account um, while we still can and just to have it for our records. And, uh, you know, in addition to the Council Wars project, uh, Jonah and I had also been and are still also doing a, a documentary about Ralph Baer, the father of video games. And, yeah. you know, it was just important to us to spend time with him and to try to hear what he remembers, and luckily he actually saved so much stuff that he was involved in a lot of litigation. But, uh, but you know, there's nothing like a, a first-hand account, and for me that was like, that was critical to console wars. I remember the first time I spoke with Olaf Olafson, everything I'd heard about him 
everything I had heard about the way that he felt by being spurned by Nintendo was incorrect. He had a different perspective. And so, you know, that was all secondhand accounts of what they thought Olaf was feeling. And to hear it from him, even if it had changed by time, or even if he was, for whatever reason, not telling the truth, which I don't believe is the case, it was just interesting to realize that, um, you know, there's nothing like going to the source. And so hopefully uh, more and more people will get, the, get their stories on record and and uh, and will be found by people who are interested in that. Thank you. Uh, you brought up your, your next project, your next book. So it's about VR. Uh, and everybody's getting behind this tech. Oculus, Microsoft, Samsung. They're all trying to see who can hit the first home run. Uh, recently... Uh, Nintendo of America's president, Reggie fils declared that VR wasn't fun. So, kind of a two-part question. What is the impact VR tech will have on the gaming industry? And why do you think Nintendo chooses to opt out? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, don't know what, uh, I, I, I can't believe Reggie said that. Um, I know, I, I, base in point, you know, my base answer is Virtual Boy, but I'm hoping you have something deeper than that. <laughs> Well, I mean, he's such a, he, he's a really great guy, and he's a really smart guy, and that's, you know, it's not a factual statement that VR is not fun, and I would say that it's very fun, uh, whether it's the games or the entertainment. I think that that's fun. The number one thing it has going for it is that it's fun. I think that the you know, potential problems are memories of old VR, the cost, the connectivity, and the social aspect. These are all challenges that I believe will be um successfully accomplished, but I don't think fun is an issue. Um, I think that's the only reason people would spend um, the money, you know, $600 to buy a Oculus Rift or $800 to buy a HTC Vive or any of the other headsets it's because it's really fun. Um, and for me, you know, um, I honestly, I love the fun component. I enjoy having fun as much as the next guy or maybe more so. But, uh, you know, what really intrigued me about um, virtual reality is the kind of stuff that you were asking about, like the the what else are the beyond the, the social interactivity is uh, is really fascinating, especially now that Facebook owns Oculus and Facebook has the largest social network out there, and that's their mission is to continue having the most uh, you know extensive and most um, I guess intimate or compelling social experience. And uh, you know I think VR is a great way to accomplish that. When I was when the last time I was at Oculus, I um, tried Toybox. Um, which is an experience where you're wearing a headset and someone in a different room is wearing a headset, but in virtual reality, you are both in the same space, and it really feels like you're in the same room with another person. And, uh, you know, that's a feeling I've never felt before, and that's incredible. And we can play catch with the, you know, with toys and play a little bit of ping pong, um, and this is all just, the, you know, the first stage of it. So, uh, you know, getting the sky is the limit. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I think we're getting closer and closer to Ready Player One, which is a great book that I recommend you or anybody else. I've read that one. That's a good book. One of my favorite things about it, and and I was talking with Palmer about it, and we both really liked, and Palmer being Palmer Lucky from Oculus, um, who's the founder of Oculus, one of the founders, uh, we were talking about how among the many things that Ready Player One does really well, we like that it, it doesn't depict the future as necessarily a utopia or a dystopia with the technology. It's kind of like, you know, it, it really is one of the first futuristic types of books where I didn't feel like the author was condemning or 
or supporting a certain types of decisions technology was almost like, it sounds uh, almost like a documentary. Here's what could happen, and here's how it would play out, and maybe good, maybe it's bad, um, but it's fascinating. And uh, I don't know, I mean, getting back to what Mickey said, I think that, I know I think back to my first console, which was the NES, which I probably got in 88 or 89, and, and like, I, I don't remember what exactly I thought when I first played Mario, but I remember that my response was just something like, oh my God, like, you just, my face just said it all. It was just like, you know, open jawed, shock. I can't believe that they, that this is, that, you know, that you can play games like this, that games like this exist. And that is the, that's the reaction I've done from every single person that I've demoed virtual reality for. Um, and so I think that alone is pretty significant, but it's just, it really is jaw dropping. Um, and, and I hope that Nintendo doesn't um, dismiss virtual reality because Nintendo happens to make a lot of my favorite video games. And I really hope that they'll exist in a virtual space um, in the near future. Thank you. Awesome. So this is the final question. Uh, what is the status on the console's feature film and documentaries? Can we get any details? Uh, I'm happy to share them with you. Unfortunately, they're not too interesting. Uh, we're still working on uh, post-production of the documentary. We finished with all the interviews. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a, unfortunately a long process. I'm a, an impatient person by nature. <laughs> uh, so I always want things to move. But, uh, you know, between I'm working on the new book and uh, Joe and I are working on other projects and Seth and Evan are kind of taking over the world and, you know, everyone should check out Preacher, their new show. Um, you know, it's hard to uh, to finish it, but it's, you know, that's only because we want to finish it, right? It's I think it's very important on a personal level to all of us involved. I know that's why Seth and Evan took an interest in it because they grew up playing video games and their friendship was kind of founded on video games. So, uh, you know, we're, we're psyched with how it's coming out, but, uh, you know, unfortunately I don't have a release date to uh, reveal on air with you. No, that's perfect. That's, that's, that's great. Yeah, because ever since I've heard that the movie was coming, like, which I heard before I read the book, I was like, I need to see this movie. I need to watch this documentary. Like, I need them. They have to happen. So I'm highly anticipating. <laughs> Good. Good. It'll be, it'll, you know, I, I'm confident that it will satisfy what you're looking for. You know, when jo jo it was Jonah's idea to do the documentary. And, you know, my first thought was like, man, even if this was just 90 minutes of old Sega Nintendo commercials, I would be pretty interested in seeing that. So uh, the fact that it's actually, you know, time. <laughs> the fact that it's like a super compelling narrative with all these awesome dynamic characters and then also has some of the, you know, the archival footage in it, um, you know, it's, it's like, it feels like a time capsule of our childhood. And, and that's awesome, especially because when I was writing the book, I tried not to make it nostalgic because I knew that we would all bring something to our own because you don't have, you know, there's no screenshots of commercials in there. Everything is described. So, you know, to actually be able to show these commercials or to show people talking about these games and, um, you know, it's, it's really special and it's really fun. Awesome. Well, Mr. Harris, it was a great pleasure having you as my first ever interview. Uh, you were a great guest and this interview was as cool as I thought it would be. So thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to, to record with us today. Well, you did a great job, and, uh, and it's my pleasure. Tom Cook, was my first real serious interview, um, and, I, and that turned out well. So I hope that this uh, 
turns out well for you. Um, and right. you, you did a great job asking questions. And, uh, and thanks for having me on. It was fun. Oh, thank you. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience, maybe how they can get the book, when they can look forward to the, the virtual reality book? Um, sure. Uh, you know, Comptowers is available wherever books are sold, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, in stores. It's on Audible. Fred Berman, the narrator, does an awesome job. Uh, he watched some of the clips from the documentary to see how these people talk, and he does a really cool job of, you know, really channeling that. Um, as I said, I'm working on a new virtual reality book. It'll be a in May of next year by HarperCollins. And, uh, and then in the meantime, I, I write a column every two weeks for the How Does This Get Made podcast hosted by Paul Shear, Jason Manzoukas, and June Diane Raphael, where they talk about um, usually pretty awful, awful movies. And I usually write oral histories about how those movies got made because nobody set out to make a bad movie. So somewhere along the way, something got messed up, and those were really fun. And also, uh, fitting with what I said earlier, they're always first-person stories, which is what I like to tell. I like to hear it from the horse's mouth. Oh. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, again, we do appreciate your time. Well, guys, that's going to be our show for today. We really hope you enjoyed this extra-long, very special episode. We also want to thank Mr. Blake Harris for getting on the show with us. It was an awesome experience to interview him, and I would love to do it again in the near future. Hopefully right around the time that the VR book comes out because by then we'll know what the impact of uh, VR is on gaming. So we would definitely like to have Mr. Harris back on. It was a great, great interview. And again, we just really want to thank him for his time. Guys, got to hit you up with these social media links before we go today. You can always hit us up on Twitter at Nice193. You can email us at Nice193 at gmail.com hit us up on facebook facebook.com slash nice1983 game collecting don't forget to check out the website nice1983.wix.com slash game collecting and you can always download new episodes of the spot zones on itunes you can stream them on stitcher and if you like watching the video versions go ahead and watch them on youtube that's going to be it for this episode guys and as always stay fresh Deuces.